0: Turn your architectural designs into stunning, immersive experiences with Enscape. This innovative tool integrates seamlessly with your design software to bring your ideas to life in real-time 3D and VR. With Enscape, you will experience instant rendering, have the ability to make design changes on the fly, and present your projects in stunning detail. Ideal for architects, designers, and anyone passionate about visual storytelling in architecture. Dive into a new era of design visualization with Enscape. Visit Enscape3D.com to learn more. That's E-N-S-C-A-P-E 3D.com. Hi. My name is Carrie Seaburn, professional engineer, and this is Unstruct. Unstruct is the podcast where we share the stories from within your walls to help you understand how they stand today. Hello, and welcome back to Unstruct. In this episode, I sit down with Mark Sarkeesian, who is a structural and seismic partner with SOM in San Francisco, California. So uh, Mark actually holds 14 U.S. international patents for high-performance seismic structural mechanisms, and in 2021, he was elected as a member of the prestigious National Academy of Engineering for his innovation in efficient and aesthetic design of tall buildings and structures. So suffice to say, Mark is an extreme expert in the field of structural engineering and seismic design. Not only that, he is also on the forefront of the Urban Sequoia design philosophy. So we actually sit down and talk about the Benchmark Tower, which is located in San Francisco as well. But this Urban Sequoia thought process or design philosophy is kind of a whole new way of thinking. And really, if you think of it, it really boils down to buildings behaving like trees or like living organisms. So instead of outputting carbon, the goal is to actually sequester or take in carbon. So it actually creates this net negative carbon emission situation where buildings are able to actually capture carbon and withhold it. So instead of Putting out all of the carbon emissions, they are sequestering it and keeping it internal, not only the carbon that it is producing, but additional carbon as well. So it's actually very fascinating. So there's a lot of different components to this that we'll get into in the interview, but some of them would include kind of the construction methodology. Maybe the use of robotics and shortening the construction schedule as a way to limit carbon output and also what materials are being used. So there's actually some materials out there that are carbon sequestering that are actually capturing and keeping carbon. So we talk about that a little bit. And then we get into using living organisms. So This is also known as biophilics, incorporating living elements into building design that are able to, by nature, take on carbon. That was also super fascinating. And then another thing we talked about is building lifespan. So increasing the lifespan of the building so that it is able to function for a longer period of time and thus reducing the carbon output as well. So For me, this was a completely different way of thinking about building design and very fascinating because actually the building industry gives out 40% of carbon emissions currently. So it really is an opportunity to kind of have a voice and an impact on what is happening in the future of building design and our sustainability efforts. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Mark. Mark, thank you so much for being here today. Thanks, Carrie. Yes. So the cool thing about this building and about this philosophy is that it is just an overall kind of new way for us as structural engineers to think about design. So we all know that we are kind of actually in a crisis moment where, you know, we have a carbon issue, right? The output that we are producing is creating global warming, all of the things. It is not sustainable at the rate that we are currently outputting carbon in our environment. So if you could maybe talk a little bit about the urban Sequoia design philosophy and how that kind of addresses that problem that we have right now.
1: Sure. So I would say that the the concept for the tower is, is one that perhaps is a metaphor for a much bigger sort of philosophy and design. And the best way to maybe describe this is that the challenges in front of us in terms of emissions of carbon dioxide goes well beyond the operation of our buildings and it's in the actual construction of our buildings that we need to think of it. And beyond the building itself, there's the district, there's the city, there's the country. There's a a larger philosophy about design that I think that this urban Sequoia concept is a way for us to form a, a platform of thinking And the idea of net zero design is a good one, but the question is, can we take it beyond that? Can we design buildings that sequester carbon, absorb carbon? And can we even think of buildings as a generator of power, a collector of water, for example, and a distributor to maybe other buildings within a district? So I think of this as as one piece of a much bigger plan that, we think is important to consider.
0: Yeah, no, that's super fascinating. And just looking at this concept, like it's so fascinating to me that it really goes back to nature and the idea of a tree and how a tree takes in carbon. And you're almost like creating a building structure that does something very similar, correct?
1: That's right. And it all started with this philosophy that the embodied carbon that we actually put into our buildings can be even more important than the carbon that's being emitted during operation. So what we found is that for a significantly tall building, it may take up to 20 years for the embodied carbon that we put into it day one to be overcome by the carbon that's emitted during operation. Okay. So if that building goes out of service over that 20 year lifespan, the most carbon that's been emitted is actually the carbon from day one. So the philosophy here is to reduce the amount of carbon in the structure the day we build it, and then come up with ideas that reduce and perhaps absorb carbon during the life of structure. Mm-hmm. We found that there's been a great deal of progress, and I use lead as an example of a way to, to gauge or, or measure the success of building design. And a lot of it centers around uh, human health, but also around the operation of our buildings. And what we found was there was a big gap in this philosophy and that we needed to come up with a way to first calculate carbon when we build. So that is associated primarily with three components. There's material, there's construction, And then there's what we call probabilistic damage. And thinking of buildings in terms of embodied carbon overall life is extremely important. So buildings don't last last forever. We like to think that they might, but usually a building life might be a 50 year design life, for example. And if that building is in an area of higher risk, like higher seismicity, if we design the building properly, it might perform very, very well and repairs and even reconstruction due to seismic damage might be eliminated based on higher performing systems. So it's an integrated idea that first minimizes embodied carbon and then puts the building into service. And with the design of key components, even if we get a major earthquake, the damage could be limited. Okay. And therefore, carbon to repair it would be limited.
0: Yes. You talked about the three different things. So materials, construction, and then probabilistic damage. Is that correct? Did I get that third one correct? Correct. Could we talk a little bit about the materials that can be used to, you know, come to a carbon neutral or to lower that carbon output, but also get to the point like you talked about of sequestering carbon. So actually taking on that carbon and getting to a net negative design. So what are some of these materials or what What have you guys been experimenting with and implementing in the building design?
1: Yeah, good question. It starts with geometry. So when you first conceive of the idea, you have to conceive of something that has a very efficient force flow path. So for example, slab systems, horizontal systems that have to span from point to point. Mapping the force flow within those systems is hugely important. And an example of this is that we've used post-tensioning in what you would argue is an organic pattern that maps against the force flow and we're with the force flow of the actual demand that's on the slab system. So instead of having linear systems of post-tensioning, these systems look, I would argue, like a flower in plan. And it's because the force flows aren't necessarily straight from, let's say, column to column. In fact, they may move both laterally and vertically within the system. So the first thing is geometry. So where the points of support are and how we deal with the the engineering behind mapping those force flows. Then you can take those ideas and come up with ways of, I'll say using, using science that is under development. So for example, coming up with systems that replace cement, conventional cement and reinforced concrete systems. There are technologies today that actually insert carbon dioxide into the process. Carbon Cure is, is an example of that, that we think has promise um, in actually embedding carbon into the system. There are also cement replacements. For instance, ground glass. Another company called Sioneer is a company that's looking at introducing a cement replacement that's from recycled and ground glass. So imagine that we can take the input of carbon significantly down in the cement component of our concrete systems and then layer on technologies like this post-tensioning example that I gave you. So it's geometry and then the minimal use of material. There's another material that we are working with that it has had a couple of names over its life. The first was BioBrick. And it has evolved into bio, really a, a bio cement kind of concept where it's essentially food product, the basis of a food, food product technology that absorbs carbon when you make the material. And this is a, an idea that's been developed jointly with the University of Colorado and a company called Prometheus. And we are partnering with them in the development of the structural application of this material. So for example, instead of using timber for formwork systems that eventually has to be replaced, you could create form systems that are purely in compression made out of this material that has lower strength, let's say lower compressive strength. It may be in the order of a thousand PSI. We see it growing, getting higher and higher, perhaps um, getting aligned with what we would see in masonry construction, say, 2,000 PSI material and use it in pure compression and then leave it. Maybe it's part of our structure. And then the structural topping that goes on top of it is perhaps very minimal, very minimal. Structurally, it has the capacity, but it's a material that absorbs carbon and it is something that could be actually quite beautiful, we think. These are ideas that we think are super important on the replacement of material as we build, but also creating geometries perhaps that are not just flat systems. They may have some curvature th- to them. The other piece of this that's important is, and, and we see this in the automobile industry, Tesla is a very, good ex- a very good example of this. And that is the speed of construction because the material piece was the first piece that you referenced, but construction is the second piece and construction Time is very important to this, right? So the people that need to come to the project site, the amount of crane time, all of that, I would argue is carbon associated with the building. If there's a way of creating a more automated process of, of how we build and using techniques that are part of a prefabricated concept, we can reduce the amount of carbon that it takes very significantly during the process of building. and. We think that there's a lot of room for advancement here, a lot of room. So robotics are important and robotics might be applied similar to the way it's being done in the automobile industry where very smartly designed components and smartly defined space spatially where where these robots would work. We think that that will also have a significant reduction in the amount of carbon that we need to put into our buildings.
0: Okay. A lot of times with a high-rise building, if it's a concrete construction, you have to wait a certain amount of time, whether that's seven days or whatever, you have to reach a certain compressive strength for that floor system before you can strip the forms and begin to start building up. But if you're using a biobrick or I don't want to say sacrificial form, but a permanent form that's there. Right. Now you're using that to help aid in that strength, right? So you don't have to wait as long to move up to the next floor. Would that be a correct assumption? Absolutely. Okay.
1: Exactly. Because we have the forming systems, we have, we then reshore the system as we we go down, and we usually typically do that on multiple floors. So that process tends to 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 shorten that period of time, and and maybe that that layer of construction that is obviously doable and we're trying to make it more efficient by using a technique like this. The other idea that we're, we're developing is the use of timber, the use of laminated timber that can be used as a permanent form in the building. And, and there are other other firms that are looking at this as well, but this is another great example of leaving in that material, perhaps making it composite with the concrete that goes above it, solving the issues of things like floor vibration, fire rating, and so forth, but make it part of the architecture, right? And it can have various geometries. It doesn't have to be a conventional fixed span. It can have geometry in plan, or, or it could even have geometry in elevation in, or in section. But this is another way of using a material that has absorbed carbon, right? Mm -hmm. And is useful for both structure and this idea that carbon has been absorbed by it during its life. And we think this is another really smart way of incorporating this and it can be done in, in high rise construction.
0: Very fascinating. Well, and just from looking at some renderings of this type of methodology, their urban sequoia methodology, like everything looks streamlined and simplistic, but beauty. So it's almost like using the structure for beauty. And those of us as structural engineers I always love to see that, right?
1: Yes.
0: But that to me, it seems like that would also cut down time because you're not doing as much as far as drop soffits and you know ornate kind of finished materials or tenant improvement type of stuff. It's more streamlined. Is that kind of the general consensus as well?
1: Absolutely. And our dream is that a lot of the secondary systems that are required in our buildings today go away. So the system that I described to you in terms of the floor the floors, for example, they also are used for air supply and return. There's also a technology that you'll see with the Urban Sequoia about carbon capture during the process. Now, this is a mechanical process that can absorb carbon over the life of the building, but you you can imagine that that process, that mechanical process could be powered by sustainable methods. And that leads to the second sort of major part of this in terms of its operation and how the idea of carbon being absorbed over time is aided with these ideas where you use sustainable energy, the sun for example, and you store the energy. There's a lot of great advancements there in terms of energy storage on site. And then that energy is used to drive, let's say, carbon capture uh, devices within the system. And it's kind of an integrated concept of, let's say, eliminate everything that you don't need, okay, bare minimal, but beautiful sort of ideas, right? So the way we see buildings where a lot of our structure is covered, it could be ceilings or walls, it could be the exterior wall is, is heavily finished, you, you know, with other materials. The idea that is, if you could get to an all-in-one concept that reduces the, the material, I would argue could create greatest flexibility of use over time, because that's the other thing for us to think about over the building life is, can we design this urban sequoia so that spaces are interchangeable, right? So this idea, perhaps, that we're designing an office building kind of goes away. It's like we're designing a building that can be used for many purposes over its life. And maybe the carbon associated with the reconfiguration is really minimal, it is completely flexible, right? Mm-hmm. And we're really excited about that. And there are certain things that you have to do with the the services for that building that you can imagine that can be incorporated into core systems and so forth that can be adaptable over time to help to adapt to the change in use of those spaces. Mm -hmm. So that's part of it, certainly part of it as well.
0: Yeah, so as you're talking, Mark, something that's really like a word that's really coming to mind is collaboration because so many times we will design the structural system and then the mechanical engineer designs the mechanical system and if i'm understanding this correctly what you're describing you're almost creating a plenum or a space for mechanical to use within the structure so it's it's collaborating with both mechanical and structural so that they don't have to use ductwork throughout the building and then cover up the ductwork so that you don't see it everywhere right so it's it's almost like a hybrid system of mechanical and structural, is that correct?
1: Exactly, so in some of the concept diagrams that we've created for Urban Sequoia, you can see that there are perforations around the perimeter, in fact, even in the structural elements that allow for air to flow through, to flow in and through the building that we can use, fresh air that we can use for the spaces. So yeah, it's this completely integrated idea of how you will say merge structure and systems so that you don't have that extra construction and extra material that's required.
0: Okay, so is part of this also, part of this Urban Sequoia philosophy extending the lifespan of the building? I think you alluded to that a little bit, right? So the goal is to design a structure that has a longer lifespan than a typical 50-year building, right?
1: That's certainly certainly a possibility. And the way that perhaps we would do that is one of the, I'll say the three points of embodied carbon over the life of, of a building. The materials, which we talked about, the construction, which we just talked about. And then the last piece is, we use the terminology probabilistic damage, but it's it's a, it's a bit of a, a term that means much more. And, and what it is, is that if you reduce the likelihood of damage over time, what comes to mind mostly, and it's very relevant, um with the most recent very significant event in Turkey and Syria, right? Where we saw strong ground motions, we saw buildings that unfortunately did not behave well. Mm-hmm. And the philosophy related to that is that it takes a lot of, I'm gonna say, energy to rebuild. And energy is everything we're talking about, carbon and so forth, that goes into the first day that those buildings will be rebuilt. So the idea would be to come up with enhanced systems that are super smart. And one of the things to, to think about in this regard is devices within your structure that that act like components of your body, for example, and, and they're fixed. We'll say they're fixed during most of the life, most of the daily life of a building. But when a big earthquake comes, they move, not freely, but they move in a controlled way. And we see that friction is very important to that, I'll say, equation. And friction within these joints, because you have a way of restraint, it's controlled restraint. You can dissipate the energy of the earthquake through these friction joints, and they don't become permanently deformed. You don't yield the material or fracture the material if it was steel, for example.
0: So a friction joint, you're saying that this is something that's allowed to move slightly in, say, an earthquake event so that it dissipates the energy and does not create a rigid failure.
1: Yeah, we like to think about it in terms of the building code, where we design, let's say, the horizontal members, the beams within a frame, to yield in a controlled way. So the yielding creates plasticity within the beam, protects the column, from damage, okay, and dissipates energy through deformation of the member, right? Mm -hmm. Imagine instead of that member bending or yielding, it has a joint in it that rotates and it rotates through an idea of, of friction. So friction is holding it together by clamping of plates together and so forth. And then when the bending gets high, instead of yielding the beam, it dissipates energy through rotation and friction. Like as if you're, you have your foot on the brake of your car and the brake pad is what's creating the, the dissipation of energy essentially, right? It's mm-hmm. protecting the steel, but it's also allowing you f- to slow the car down. It's the same concept. And we came up with a whole series of ideas. It's still in progress, but we call it the pin fuse seismic system. And this is simply an idea where you put a pin where the beam can rotate around the pin and you can use a plated, it could be curved plates and so forth that are clamped together that dissipate the energy when the bending moment is high. Now you could do the same thing in braces. So in tall buildings, we, braces are very, very good for controlling the, the stiffness of the building. And a lot of times we have a braced system or a shear wall system in our taller buildings. In those braces, those steel braces, you can imagine that at some point when the demand is really high, they could slip, not uncontrollably, but but slip with with this friction joint and just dissipate the energy and protect those braces from damage. Damage means carbon, okay? If you have to go back in there and repair it, it's carbon, right? If you have to take the building down and rebuild it, it's car- like it's a lot of carbon, right? So, mm-hmm. well, the whole idea is to increase performance by using that. Another idea that's out there, and it's something that we've introduced in, in many of our buildings, is seismic isolation. So, you actually protect the building at its base, the building itself, and the ground. There are a series of bearings that are placed underneath your structure. And what that acts as is a mechanism, a way to dissipate the energy down at the very bottom, right? And actually slow the building down create a longer period, your building period lengthens. And there's some really great advancements. There's advancements in friction pendulum bearings. There's a company on the west coast called EPS, Earthquake Protection Systems. And there are other good, good companies out there as well that use rubber, for example, or lead rubber bearings. You probably have heard of those. Those are components at the base. The message here is enhanced ideas enhanced systems, structural components that limit the damage and you know, make your building more functional, perhaps fully functional after a major earthquake, right? So it is also a way for us to think about, I'll call it the end game on carbon, right? And the promotion, even through our building codes, that there's a welcome attitude toward advanced systems, so advanced structural systems that minimize carbon impact over time. Thinking of buildings with a life, super important. Looking at the potential for damage over, over that building's life or bridge. I mean, it's a very similar concept with, with bridges. And ultimately, can we, can we absorb carbon during construction, let's say, can we absorb carbon through operation and, you know, one of the things that I think is also super important for us is to imagine that those buildings are self-sufficient. Like, could you imagine if the urban Sequoia was self-sufficient? What I mean about that is water, energy, waste, right? Those are all things to think about. I think of buildings having umbilical cords and imagine that we don't have an umbilical cord anymore. And imagine, well, at least if we can imagine that it's at a district scale, that we might have that, right? Where maybe neighbors are helping neighbors with, you know, this, this building can capture more water. This building is really smart from an energy perspective, and there's a sharing, right? So mm-hmm. it's part of maybe the, the, the bigger view of what urban sequoia and an idea like that might be.
0: Well, and I think as you're talking about this kind of being self-sufficient methodology or thought process, it really kind of eliminates or greatly reduces the probability of issues with a water line, with a sanitary sewer line, because we know that we have aging infrastructure. This is a known fact in our country that we have aging infrastructure, whether that be pipes, the ground, roads, all of the things. So if you're able to do that self-contained, we no longer have these miles and miles of water lines, sanitary sewer, electrical lines, all of the, the things that make up our infrastructure, right? And the other thing that really stood out when you were talking about all of these ways to kind of prolong the lifespan of the building by creating these simple seismic details, really the friction, con that's a very simple concept to have a friction connection to dissipate that energy and also the isolation at the base of the building so these are not things that are like overly complex that are adding a ton of cost and a ton of brain power and manpower to figure out and implement they simple concepts that can be applied globally so that's very fascinating as well
1: yeah I think I think you're you're right there and it may be a slight shift in the way we imagine the joints that we build and so forth in our buildings. But if if it's all tied to this bigger idea about the environment, I think that incrementally we'll get on board. You know, people will really look at this as it's a smart thing to do. It's a sustainable thing to do. It's looking over a life of a building or or life of a city. And you know, I think it all is is interconnected. And the issue of data is so, something that's so important. Today, right, we're collecting data many ways, right? Cell phones, automobiles, whatever—like it's, it's everywhere. So we we have this dream that these buildings and cities are in what we call sensory fields. So if we were able to understand the oncoming, upcoming, and it could be very almost instantaneous change in demand of a building, unless something really change like grossly changes gravity's gravity right
0: <laughs> unfortunately
1: <Okay>. gravity's gravity <laughs> but what what changes and what is much more instantaneous is wind and seismic for example and wind we may have predictions right we know it's coming seismic is is also something we can predict but it's it's much more instantaneous but what we imagine is that with all the data that exists could you tell a building what's going to come like what what's happening so imagine ground motions that we understand directionality and demand, right? And all of a sudden, there's a way for us to make adjustments within our structure to deal with that. And I'll call it as a, an active system, right? And it could be done through, you know, you imagine things like um, damping systems, right? It could be done through air that is, is injected into certain damping devices to allow to create motion, perhaps. Maybe phase change of materials is something we've been thinking about.
0: Can you describe that a little bit?
1: Well, the the best way to describe it might be through, I'm going to call it an analogy. So a liquid to a solid, for example. So the stiffness of the system changes, and use water as an example. So, So water is a liquid, and all of a sudden it changes to a solid. It has different characteristics. It's still the same material. But you have to introduce energy into it to make it change. But guess what, if you had material changes like that or a phase change like that, and you had stored energy, all of a sudden you've got an integrated system. And I I think that there there are other things out there that are are maybe fun to think about. You know, systems like using materials like shape memory alloy, that's a, uh, a combination of nickel and titanium that is a material that is super elastic. When you stretch it, it elongates very significantly, like almost like a rubber band. but what what happens with even this extensive elongation is it finds its way home. It finds its way back to its initial elastic state. So instead of being permanently deformed, it snaps back.
0: Hmm, seismic application there? (laughs) Yes,
1: exactly, right? Now, you have to have the right structure, okay? Maybe it's a lightweight structure. Maybe it's not a 50-story building, right? But it's the same technology that people have been using for many years in in things like artery stents. you know? So the material is placed, and then it expands into its original position. And we call it super elastic because you can really change its shape significantly and it finds its, I, I say finds its way back home. It, it finds its way back to its initial elastic state. And heat does impact this material as well. Adding heat to it changes its, its, its length so you could turn the heat on and turn it off, like kind of thing, right? Yeah. So these are things that we can imagine that that actually dissipate energy in a seismic event. And again, it's trying to minimize the material, increase better, you know, create better performance. And all the pieces add up. They all add up into a a mix of integrated ideas, could be even systems like we talked about earlier, with the target of like this, this super high performance idea, both when we build it, operate it, and we'll say live with it for a long period of time.
0: Mm -hmm. The analogy that I'm thinking of would be like floodgates on a river when they know upstream that they're going to have a flood event. You know, all the water in the mountains has melted and is now coming down. So they put the floodgates up, but a much more maybe elaborate approach in a building where, you know, we know we're going to get a storm on this day. So you activate certain components to resist those wind loads that don't necessarily have to be active all the time.
1: Yeah, it's a great example. And I I would I'm going to use a an example that I saw at TU Berlin. It's a technical university in, in Berlin. Mike Schleich, who's uh he's a very important structural engineer, and his father, York Schleich, who just recently passed away, have designed many long-span bridges and beautiful bridges, lightweight systems, cable structures, and so forth. And a few years ago, I visited the the, the laboratory there, testing lab, and they were looking at Carbon fiber bridges and pedestrian bridges. So, imagine use of carbon fiber is a super high strength material that has great strength characteristics and yet is so minimal that when you activate it, the motion is quite significant, right? So, if you're to use materials that have very minimal carbon in them, you need to supplement their behavior. And what he was doing is that. He was introducing air into the handrails, changing the dynamic characteristics actively. Well, the the bridge was engaged in in motion that would be uncomfortable, unusable without it, right? And it was remarkable what happened just by injecting compressed air into the handrails. There were devices on the handrails. It was enough to change the, the motion, dampen the motion, and quiet the the bridge down to the point where it was completely comfortable, right? It needs energy and we talked about that, but but these kinds of systems, if they're smartly introduced into the frame of a building, you could imagine that even with super lightweight materials, we might be able to dampen the building when needed, right? When needed Mm -hmm. and not put a lot of material into the lateral system for lateral loads. Keep it super minimal and then have devices are activated.
0: Yeah, that's super fascinating and efficient, right? <laughs> yeah. I feel like we could talk for days on just this thought process, this philosophy, the urban sequoia philosophy, but I want to just get into a little bit of implementation. So, has this concept been implemented in the real world? So, I think in specific, the benchmark tower, I think, is in New York City and I believe this concept has been implemented into that project, correct?
1: Well, I'm going to say pieces of it. Okay. Here's the way that these things, I would argue, develop. They develop incrementally, right? So when I originally talked about mapping force flows and minimizing the amount of material and so forth into a building, that project that, that you're referencing, it's, it's a we call the benchmark tower, is it, it was a way of introducing some of the ideas that really are in the world of, of what we know today, like you, it was really what you said earlier, you know, you're know, you trying to take no, technologies that exist uh, first and, and prove them. And I think that it's a, that's a good example of it. That's an example of a building that we refer to as an efficient building. It's a building that has a core only, we call it a core only lateral system. It's a shear wall. And we optimized the force flow within that shear wall and mapped where reinforcement would go. So it was a much more sophisticated way of placing material within the core. We also mapped the force flow of the slab systems and did the same thing with post tensioning. minimize the horizontal systems. What most people don't realize is that most of the carbon that's associated with a building typically a tall building is actually in the horizontal systems it's in, in the slab systems the framing systems and if you can reduce the amount of material there you've created a big win in terms of the carbon for that entire building so we consider that benchmark as a as a good solid idea as a start almost like a starting point
0: mm-hmm. living up to its name maybe
1: <laughs> right. And that's where urban sequoia sort of takes over, right? So so some of those ideas that, that are developed there move forward. And then layered on top of it, it's things like cement replacement, right? The idea of using a material like a biobrick material for forming systems, perhaps using ground glass for that. There's, there's also aggregate that sequesters ca- carbon I believe that the the name of the company is Blue Planet. I'm fairly certain that that's correct. And that's a way of using aggregate that's been impregnated with with carbon. So imagine those things like adding on to that original idea in a concept like the Urban Sequoia. So that's that's the reason for the comparison that you're referring to. We think it's a the benchmark building is a very efficient like smart building, minimal material and so forth, but then there's these these steps that come beyond it. So to answer your first question is, it's yes, but incrementally yes. We haven't built urban sequoia yet.
0: Okay. You have not arrived. (laughs) It's a process.
1: (laughs) I can't point to in the landscape right now. Okay. Okay. I hope that what will happen is that maybe one step at a time, it, it will be built or, you know, it depends on ambition, right? So the ambition to maybe collect the ideas together and into a tower, is what we really do hope will happen soon. And the more we think that this is something that people are focused on, the idea of of sequestration or absorption, and perhaps even in regeneration, right? The idea that that building could regenerate, could produce power, for example, for other buildings, would be really a goal that I think we maybe should all be kind of targeting as we, we move along. The exterior wall, for example, of our tall buildings can be so much smarter than it is today, right? Could be so much smarter. And there's some excellent advancements with clear gap glass, for example, that, that also can absorb uh, solar energy and use solar energy.
0: Which is fascinating.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's fascinating, right? And but but guess what? It makes total sense because our exterior walls are terrific. They protect people, they're able to control temperature and so forth, but they can be so much more, you know, so much smarter. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay. So one question I want to ask as we're kind of talking through, I can tell that you are very passionate about innovation and about just this whole concept. How do you come up with new ideas? Like how are you exploring new ideas? Are you testing them in a lab? Are you researching? Like how do you come up with these new and innovative ideas?
1: Well, I would say that a lot of it has to do with ambition, right? So our firm, SOM, is, is a firm that has existed for a long time, since 1936. And with that is you know kind of a great responsibility of constant renewal. And the DNA of our firm is really centered around what's next. And what we find in the studio here, and this is throughout our firm, I'm using studio as kind of an inclusive kind of idea, is that we think about buildings before they're buildings. Like we dream about components of buildings. There's a, a huge research effort that goes on every day in the firm. And it's typically done internally. We do have outside partners and so forth. But we try to imagine this before we have the assignment to design it for a client. So if you were our client and you said, I would want, I want you to build, you want to design for me urban sequoia, our hope is that we're ready to do that. Like, you know, so we're, we're working on that. So your question around testing, yes. The answer is yes. We do sponsor testing. In fact, we believe it's super important to be engaged with universities. And we are fortunate throughout the world to have some really great ones. And they have similar ambitions. And so we have partnered with many schools to share ideas, but also to actually do physical research. The research that's done, some of it is analytical research, for example. Some of it is related to theories of optimization of materials. So density optimization of structures and force flows help us understand buildings even better than, let's say, we knew about 20 years ago. I mean, there's been huge advancements. So it is something that drives us. We sort of live that kind of life of, it's not just the design commission, but it's maybe what we can come up with that have a, may have a broader impact, with. that's our hope. And it's a, a practice, it's a collection, and other firms are like this too, of, of people with different perspectives. In our case, it's instead of just engineers, we've got architects and interior designers and mechanical engineers and urban planners. And, and you know, so we sort of force each other to think about things from multiple perspectives. That's why I opened with. This is not just a building, right? This is in a district or a city because our planners are thinking about how that would work too. Anyway, so that's just some maybe a little bit of background about us and how, you know, how we think about about the research that feeds into this.
0: Yeah, I see it as driving the industry actually at SOM. I, I mean, I just see the work that you're doing. You're you're at the forefront of the industry and of the future of design. And that's very inspiring. Okay, quick question. If you could give the Urban Sequoia a theme song, what would it be?
1: This is like you know, this is like taking an S E test, you know, a structural <laughs> engineering test. You know, that's a really good question. I, I don't know. It's a fun one, but it's a little bit of a hard one. I, I don't know. After you, you've you kind of listened to the story, do you have any ideas about?
0: I have lyrics on the tip of my tongue, but I can't think of of the song. It's like I want to walk on the ocean. It's all about nature and just really enjoying nature because I think this philosophy gives us the opportunity to enjoy nature in the future, whereas we may not have that opportunity if we don't implement these things.
1: Yeah, that's a great way to think about it. I I totally agree with you. And, you know, it's one of those things where nature is like, it's so awesome. It's like writing the lyrics to the song. You can imagine how awesome it is, but it's not easy to put the words together, right? And it's the same thing with nature. Nature is so beautiful, but describing it mathematically and then taking that mathematical description to construction is really tough. Mm -hmm. It's really tough. And through the imagery of urban sequoia and so forth, you can see this sort of beautiful image of what it may be. And it's derived by the things that we've talked about, which is, I'll say, a derivation of natural growth patterns and force flows that exist and water that exists within trees and you know, I, I'll leave you with maybe one thought. Maybe it's related to your song. This is a little personal story here. I think it's relevant.
0: I think we're writing a song right now. We're writing.
1: Well, Kathy said to me, come here, come here, come here. Come to the window. Come to the window, right? So what, 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 what? Okay. So she said, you see, take a look. And in the back of our house there are a couple of large trees. And the trees were moving in the wind. And she looked at me and she said, they're exercising. And I thought about, my goodness, actually, if you think about it, motion, right? And the fact that exercising is a way of creating, allowing for the passageways to remain open. Like we think about it in our bodies too, right? That exercise is a good thing. And so imagine that you have this philosophy that they're exercising they need to do that, and maybe that our buildings have a similar kind of kind of philosophy that, you know, motion might be a good thing, and that's why we get at these ideas of moving joints, controlled movement. But it's sort of like they're exercising, and the tree might use that to make sure the water flows properly. We may do it because we're trying to protect the building against damage, right? And so it's exercising in a way that. It helps it from, from getting damaged, but allows it to move, you know, Mm -hmm. it's a way of thinking when you you, you you talk about nature, it's a fascinating thing. And the more we can apply it uh, for sure, we're going to get better results, I think.
0: Yeah. I love that. I feel like we could be also building chiropractors then in that situation. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Okay. Last question before we sign off. How do you Mark Sarkeesian recharge?
1: Look at the ocean.
0: Love that. So much complexity, but like so soothing and calm and simple at the same time. There's so much to that. It's so simple, but there's so much to that. I love it. I'm going to be thinking about the ocean because I am landlocked here. You probably are not. So you probably get to see that beautiful sight. I I am going to imagine that I'm in San Francisco right now. But thank you so much, Mark, for sharing your expertise and letting me kind of pick into your brain a little bit about the Urban Sequoia. It's super fascinating, and I can't wait to see how it develops and grows and morphs into new things. So thank you so much for being here today.
1: Sure. Thanks, Carrie.
0: Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode of Unstrupped and know someone else who would, please share it with them. And if you enjoy the work that I'm doing here in general, I would really appreciate your rating and review on Apple Podcast. It goes a long way to help others find the show. Speaking of finding shows, Unstruct is part of the Gable Media Network, a place where you can find even more content like this. To see the catalog of shows focused on our built environment, visit gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. Lastly, if you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe before you go so that you don't miss the next story from Within the Walls and how they stand today. Hey there, architecture enthusiast. Nikita Reed here, inviting you on an incredible journey through time and space with my podcast, Tangible Remnants. Historic preservation and sustainability? Let's go ahead right now and debunk the myth that they are opposites. In fact, they are two sides of the same coin, shaping our collective future. In a work environment, it has been challenging because I've had to probably do more than double just to make sure that I quote unquote fit in. But the environments that have allowed me to do me on the front end, I've been extremely, Extremely successful
1: you look at all these PhDs they've built that on the backs of our elders
0: absolutely
1: what they consider themselves to be experts at is what they've worked with us to achieve I know we have
0: to we have to prioritize people before products and before place join me as we unravel the stories of historic buildings shaped by the people of a specific era and often influenced by race and gender. These Tangible Remnants are windows into our past and guideposts for the future. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe now to Tangible Remnants. Let's explore the interconnectedness of architecture, preservation, sustainability, race, and gender.